BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, September 2nd, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Our last episode featured an interview with David Epstein, one of my favorite writers, talking about one of my favorite things, which is essentially what happens when we train and how can we train most optimally. His thesis in his book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph, was that we kind of underrate a general knowledge, a broad in- intelligence or broad training, and we specialize too early. This week's guest is looking at much the same topic, but from a different perspective, He's David Robson, and he wrote a book called The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. Even though I recorded these two interviews relatively far apart in time, I thought it would be important to actually play them back to back because we cover some of the same issues, but from two very different perspectives. When we develop expertise, we tend to think that we know what we're talking about, and often we do, but that also makes us more susceptible to certain kinds of biases, and that's why we can make some pretty dumb mistakes. David Robson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you. So one of the things I loved about your book is that it kind of turns over a, a kind of a theme that we see now in, in media on its head. So a lot of people talk about the fact that at least in America and maybe even here in Britain, I should tell our listeners that we are currently recording this interview in London, um, there is an anti-intellectualism, right? There are people who really are, are pushing back against this idea that there are elite authorities and we should listen to them. Uh, here you are telling us that people people who are intelligent can be their own worst enemies, that they're in some ways they become trapped by their intelligence. So I want to start with uh, asking you how you define intelligence. What is it that you use to decide whether a person is you know, smart or not? Right. Uh, so the definition of intelligence that I'm using is really the definition that I think most psychologists would agree on. And that's the kind of skills that are measured by IQ tests, which I think we can agree are not perfect measures of someone's total intellectual capacity. But what they are meant to measure is this kind of underlying brain power, or it's known as the G factor because it's a general intelligence that is meant to underlie a lot of problem solving. So on an IQ test, for example, you might have 
uh, tests of your vocabulary, your nonverbal reasoning, your mathematical abilities. And all of those do tend to correlate. Some people are better at some skills than others, but overall, if you're better at verbal reasoning, you're also a bit better at spatial reasoning too. And that's thought to be due to some anatomical differences in the brain. So for example, people with higher IQs have uh, more efficient neural networks that can process information a little bit more rapidly. And if I was going to define intelligence in just a single sentence, that's really how I would define it as the ability to process complex information and think in an abstract way. But as I also describe in the book, we can apply that brain power wrongly, so it can actually make you more stupid in some circumstances. Yeah, so that, that's really fascinating to me. And and also, you know, I just want to talk a little bit, though, about this notion that, you know, as psychologists, we've searched for the G factor. You know, there there have been decades of work trying to find what is this core thing? Is it processing speed? Is it, as you mentioned, the efficiency of neural networks? Is it, you know, in every decade as we get more tools to measure the brain, you know, we find a new way of kind of redefining it, but it's never been so satisfactory that we've been able to, say, for example, test 100 children and accurately predict, you know, which ones are going to be the most successful in their society. I mean, there's been some efforts to that, and we can talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you talk about in your book. But there are also approaches that psychologists have taken, um, some of which have actually been overinterpreted in the media, that intelligence really should be divided up into different categories. So Gardner's multiple intelligences model, for example, is a big one. Um, and we, we can talk about the, the pros and cons of that. But you also mentioned one model that I, I think is actually often overlooked by the media that is actually very powerful, and that's Bob Sternberg's. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, how he would define intelligence and why that might be uh, important to do. So, I mean, I would say it's quite useful, really, to look at Bob Sternberg's um, theory of successful intelligence, as he calls it, um, compared to the theory of multiple intelligences, which I think some people, the critics, had just said was a little bit too broad. So the multiple intelligences include things like um, your musical ability, your artistic ability. I think in one of the later versions, it even includes kind of how um, how good you are at kind of understanding nature and the different kinds of plants around you. Um, and some... Uh, psychologists just feel that maybe you're not you're kind of broadening it so to such an extent that it becomes almost meaningless. Whereas what I like about Bob Sternberg's idea is that he he refer, um, uh, constrains his definition of multiple intelligences to just three types of intelligence, which seem to cover all kinds of situations. Um, so there's analytical intelligence, which is essentially what we've just discussed: the kind of intelligence that's measured by IQs. But then there's also practical intelligence. And you might think of this as being a little bit like common sense. I actually think that uh, it's a, a, a bit more sophisticated than that. But it really looks at this idea that sometimes people, some people are just better at picking up the kind of implicit rules of the kind of uh, environment around them. Um, and this is known as tacit knowledge. So, for example, in the workplace, you could have someone who's got a great academic track record, but maybe they're just not very good at kind of working out how to uh, get the most out of their team members or how to carry out a plan, how to overcome challenges, you know, and that's really what this is uh, getting at, that practical intelligence. Um, and then finally, there's also creative intelligence. And this isn't looking at artistic expression or whether you're a good painter, but it's more about how you can think flexibly and solve problems in a kind of uh, 
uh, using more of a left field kind of way of thinking. So, uh, for example, one important aspect of that is this idea of counterfactual thinking. So that's trying to kind of imagine what if. So, for example, if you're looking at the American elections, it might be a useful exercise to wonder, well, what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had won the election? And by doing that comparison, you might also understand more about Trump and the kind of situations he's in. Now, that really isn't tested by standard measures of intelligence, and it's not really something that we um, uh, often ask students to, to do in, say, um, history exams at school. But actually, that is a really important way of thinking. And um, Robert Sternberg has found that these uh, three different types of intelligence, the practical, creative, and analytical, don't correlate very strongly with each other. But when you do measure those, uh, Together, they can predict someone's academic success and their success in the workplace much better than if you just look at the analytical intelligence or IQ. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because I, I agree that I think in most academic settings and even in many workplace settings, we do focus on the analytical. And when someone scores high on or is, you know, highly analytically intelligent, problems that come up like that would require more practical wisdom or more creative intelligence tend to be attributed to the situation. So, oh, my coworkers just are too stupid. I can't get along with them. Not like I'm not clever enough to in practical ways to figure out how to motivate them in the right way. And so like one example that you give in the book that I thought really resonated with me as a as a mom of two children um, was this this description of this teacher who had you know these kids in a playground who were you know or, or in a classroom who were misbehaving and she gave them a whole bunch of different kind of she redirected their behavior rather than just asking them you know to to be good um, so tell us a little bit about that yeah absolutely um, so that was actually my friend Emma who so I visited her classroom a few times and you know she really had it running like a well oiled machine because. She just knew how to motivate these kids with all of these games and like making, like when they had to tidy up the classroom, she made it this kind of competition where she was timing how quickly they could do it. And it just brought out their kind of competitive instincts. So um, they were like amazingly well behaved uh, when she was uh, in charge. Um, then when I tried to take over, I just lacked all of those, that kind of practical intelligence. And, you know, they were running riot. Um, and I'm sure, like, if I had trained as a teacher, I might have improved a little bit on those. But I still have this strong suspicion, especially in the light of Robert Sternberg's work, that my practical intelligence just isn't as high as Emma's. I just find it a bit harder to kind of notice and to pick up on those implicit rules of the environment that could help me to succeed in that kind of situation. Yeah, and I, and one of the points you make in your book is that the sort of the higher you are in the analytical side, the less humble you might be in some of these other ways. I mean, we like to think that, you know, the more you know, the more you don't know. And that's true, I think, when it comes to the subject matter at hand. Um, but it often doesn't translate to things that you might think are really not that difficult. Like, you know, making sure that kids in a classroom are well behaved sounds like a pretty simple task, uh, even though, you know, it can be very complicated. And by bringing in all of this practical wisdom and even creative intelligence, you know, thinking about, a, you know, saying like, let's all pretend we're on a spaceship. And, you know, what would you do if this was a spaceship? Where would you put the pens and that kind of thing? Um, so they don't float away. You know, that's like really much more creative than can you just put the pens away? And I'm just going to get angrier and angrier because you won't do it, you know. And so yet we think that 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 um, that if we're if we are have high analytical intelligence, um, that that it really should translate, and so we don't see ourselves as as failing because we are low in practical intelligence, but rather for some other reason. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I feel like this is a real problem with our kind of culture that we have just assumed that um, analytical intelligence kind of serves all problem solving, uh, which is very much the kind of definition of general intelligence. But that has, even if you're not a psychologist, I feel like that's just been absorbed in our education system in the workplace. Um, so we just assume if someone is smart, they will be good at all of those other things. And like you said, we blame it on the environment rather than looking within ourselves and what we could maybe do to improve to improve our practical intelligence, for instance. I mean, I feel since writing the book, I have felt more self-conscious of those kinds of elements. And, you know, I do feel through observation and deliberate reflection, you can improve them. And of course, some of the most intelligent people that I know are the ones who spend more time listening than talking, right? And I feel like they maybe intuitively or have learned over time and they have developed some of this wisdom to understand that, in fact, they can learn more from the situation and they can make better decisions if they step back as opposed to, you know, trying to control the situation. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about what are some of the other forms of the intelligence trap. So now if we can all agree, if we're talking about intelligence, we're really, you know, focusing in this case on the kind of analytical intelligence that is taught in schools and that seems to be, you know, particularly, you know, when most people think of intelligence, that's what they think of. Um, but how does that trap us uh, into situations in which we actually make worse decisions? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is really the heart of the book, I think. And it's really what surprised me the most as I was researching it, that it's not just that intelligent people might be lacking certain skills, but actually it can lead you astray. Um, so I compare it almost to um, like a a kind of car with a really fast engine, but with no brakes or no steering wheel. You know, it's just going to, the faster you go, the more likely you are to have like a crash. Um, and I think very much the same could be said of intelligence. So I, I think like the second important form of the intelligence trap, if the first is the lack of practical intelligence, the second is this concept known as uh, motivated reasoning. And that's really where you apply your brain power just to protect your kind of beliefs and intuitions, rather than really trying to um, look at things in a more rational, fair-minded, open-minded kind of way. Um, so I think like we see this a lot in politics, for instance. So for issues like gun control or climate change that are very much tied to someone's political identity, you see that actually the more intelligent people are, say, as measured by their numerosity or their scientific literacy, the more polarized they become. So these people can be looking at exactly the same evidence, but they're using their intelligence to read what they want into that evidence, rather than really interrogating it in a very analytical way. And that obviously creates huge problems in our society. Yeah, so I think you, is it Jonathan Haidt's study on gun control versus, is that who? Sorry. So yes. Yeah, so why don't you tell us about Dan Kahn's uh, study about how uh, people interpreted uh, sort of a, a little vignette or some data on, say, the gun control question? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's um, a very elegant study. So he basically presents a table showing the kind of rates of crime in cities that have um, that have launched gun control and cities that haven't. Um, now, what he found was that how people read that very much depended on their political um, ideology. And what was especially surprising was that um, if on a first glance, the uh, the kind of figures seemed to suit your ideology, he found that the numerosity really didn't do 
as someone's numerosity really didn't do anything to improve their ability to read those figures. They just looked at the numbers and were like, yep, you know, that, that is absolutely what I would have expected. They only used their numerosity if intuitively the figures didn't quite fit what they were looking for. And then they would perform the calculations and they could prove that actually it didn't show the kind of the idea that um, opposed their opinions. Yeah, so let me just get into the numbers because I think this is really interesting. And as you mentioned, it's hard to describe without sort of seeing the table in your head. So let me just describe this table in a little bit more detail so our listeners can kind of follow along. Um, So let's say you're a person that believes that uh, gun control will lead to fewer gun deaths or fewer fewer crimes. Um, Now you see a, a, a table in which it says that um, cities that banned carrying handguns in public had, you know, a change in, in, in crime over one year. The decrease in crime was 223. The increase in crime was 75. Um, now you have cities that did not ban carrying handguns in public. And here the decrease in crime was 107, but the increase in crime was 21. So if you, let's say you're, you're, you're a person who believes that, 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 you know, the evidence is in line with, with your hypothesis, then you quickly look at those numbers and you think, oh yeah, sure, you know, that's in line with it. You don't do the actual calculation, you know, 75 versus 223 and 21 versus 107, the ratios. Um, and what you're saying is that what they found is that people, if, if it was in line with their beliefs, then they would just say, yep, that sounds great. Um, if it was not in line with their beliefs, they would make the extra effort to do the calculation in order to prove <laughs> that, you know, the, the data, you know, are going in the right or the wrong direction. Yeah, that's exactly clear. And so I think that very elegantly shows us how we use this kind of uh, brain power as um, a tool for propaganda rather than truth seeking. And so it means that, you know, we're all receiving all of this information every day. But if we're only interrogating it to prove our point, then you can see how quickly people's opinions diverge uh, very fast, depending on their kind of underlying prior beliefs. And so I think that's like a serious problem when you're looking at an issue like gun control and you really want people to be able to come to a consensus opinion on an issue. But they're really seeing two completely different versions of reality and their intelligence, which we should really expect to actually help people to see reality the way it is, is actually misleading people and pushing them further apart. Um, And in fact, you talk about people who might suffer for something called dysrationalia. (laughs) Um, Tell us about what that is. So this is um, kind of akin to something like dyslexia, where you could have someone with a very high IQ who still has a very specific problem with reading and writing. Uh, Well, dysrationalia is um, very similar in that it's someone who might have a high IQ, but very irrational. Um, So this is really based on all of that wonderful work by Daniel Kahneman, who had shown all of these cognitive biases that people can suffer from, because we rely too much maybe on intuitive thinking rather than analytical thinking. Um, So my favorite is the sunk cost bias. That's where um, you kind of don't want to give up on a failing project. You are so attached to your initial investment that you keep on pouring more and more money into it, even if it's actually going to lose lose you money in the end. Um, so the famous example is the Concorde planes that the British and French governments were pouring huge amounts of money into, even after they realised it was going to be a commercial disaster. Um, but you know, like a, a, in a more everyday situation, I think it's how if you've ordered dessert and then you feel actually, it's just going to make you sick, you've like eaten too much, but you still carry on eating it because you just don't want to, you've paid for it and you don't want to lose that money. It's very irrational, but very easy to do. And what um, the research has shown is that actually 
uh, for lots of these biases, intelligence doesn't really protect you from them at all. So people with high IQs are just as susceptible to those biases as people with lower IQs. I, I think the the sunk cost fallacy also comes in into play when we when we think about like um, our careers and these really big decisions where like if we start a job that you know really isn't working for us but we don't want to leave that job because we just think it's going to keep getting better and better even though the uh, there's no evidence that it will um, or you know if you start I, I've had students of mine who come into my office at the university and they say things like look I'm just really unhappy here but I think I should just finish it up and you know instead I'm like why why wouldn't you apply to a different school I mean I shouldn't say They'll probably get fired, but you know it's it, it, it doesn't. I, I want to sort of make make sure that they are continuing to stay for the right reasons, not because uh, they already have put in all of this um, effort and money, and you know the, their expectation that it's going to change is founded on realistic, you know, realism rather than a, a pipe dream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something I see with a lot of my friends who are incredibly intelligent, but they really get stuck in these jobs that they just don't want to do, but they're kind of too scared to kind of lose all of that experience and that education and try something completely new because it is a big risk. Um, so yeah, I would say that's the case where actually that bias might be in those particular instances might be even more common amongst intelligent people. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is, of course, confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com MINDS. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com minds. Support for today's show comes from Mova Globes. Mova Globes turn all on their own with or without a base in any setting with ambient lighting. No batteries are needed and no sloppy cords to detract from your enjoyment. Instead, hidden magnets provide the movement. With over 40 different designs, including world maps, outer space, and famous artworks, there's something for everyone. The outer space collection even features graphics provided by NASA and JPL, complete with planets, moons, asteroids, and constellation designs. It's a great gift for the person who has everything. Or pair it with your own home decor as a conversation starter. Adam, our producer, even has a MOVA globe in his home. It's true. MOVA sent me one of their globes to check out. I asked for Titan, one of Saturn's moons, and I like it quite a bit. It's something you'd put on your desk or on a shelf, and the spinning mechanism is pretty neat. It creates this sort of magical effect when it just spins on its own. This is definitely something I'll keep in mind when buying gifts for people in the future. Visit movaglobes.com minds and use the code MINDS for 10% off your purchase. That's M-O-V-A globes.com slash minds and use the code minds for 10% off your purchase.
And then there's this, uh, the, the third form, which you kind of call a form of dogmatism that, that comes into play. So it's related to what we've been talking about, but tell us a little bit about what added features it has. Right. Uh, yeah. So this is earned dogmatism. And it's, the, it's really down to your kind of perception of your own expertise. Um, so, for example, it, it really, if you, for example, if you did a politics degree, and, you know, lots of our politicians in the UK did politics degrees, um, you know, and if you did that like 30 years ago, you might have actually forgotten a lot of what you learned back then. But because you've got that degree, you've, it's on your CV, you really feel that you're still an expert in that area. And because of that perception of your expertise, you become more dogmatic in your views and more closed-minded. You don't want to listen to the alternative points of view or the new evidence because you feel like you've already proven yourself. And that really then prevents you from learning new things and updating your ideas, which is essential if you're to make good decision-making. So I think that's absolutely a problem in politics, but I think probably in any career it could be an issue. I actually think it's a particularly a problem in science because science changes so rapidly. And we, as you point out in your book, we tend to think of our knowledge on a subject as being representative of our peak knowledge of that subject rather than our current knowledge of the subject. So, for example, you give this you, you give this example of like, you know, you're asking people to, uh, you know, how, how well do you know a, a, a topic in physics if you're a physicist versus in biology and that people overestimate how well they remember the topics in their own area um, but they're actually pretty good at, at saying how well they know a topic in another area. And, and when you give them a surprise test, this becomes very obvious that all of a sudden, you know, people fail to be able to describe the, the phenomenon in their own subject area, but, uh, you know, really are in line in the other area with what they expected. Um, so this, this reminded me of, you know, I, I took university calculus. I'm a scientist. If you ask me to take a derivative of something, um, I should know how to do it. And it would, I would have to, it would be really hard <laughs> at this point because I haven't done it in 20 years. So, you know, but I, but I feel like if you asked me, I would, I would find it very difficult to admit that I can't do it, you know, on the fly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I absolutely identify with that myself. You know, I did a maths degree, but I really think I've not only forgotten most of what I learned at university, but also uh, possibly what I learned at high school as well. So, but I think like the awareness there is really important. You know, it's natural that we do forget these things, but I think the real problem that's been shown in the research is that most people just don't have that awareness. They really still believe they um, have exactly the same knowledge that they had at their peak um, when they were actually studying the subject. And that creates this kind of intellectual arrogance that then could like um, really harm your decision making, especially if you are trying to use that knowledge um, in the workplace or, you know, to make decisions about the issues in the world around you. So finally, the last form is in some ways the most dangerous because it talks about why people who are really expert in a particular area can make really beginner mistakes, really naive mistakes, um, because of their expertise, not just because of some other personality trait, um, and how the development of the expertise leads them down the garden path to making these mistakes. And that, that to me was probably the most fascinating part of this, this first half of your book. So tell us a little bit about, say, how an expert radiologist at the best, you know, cancer hospital you know, in the world can miss 
an odd tumor, whereas their resident would see it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This was really striking to me, and I, I think it really helps us to understand lots of medical errors in particular. But um, so this, the idea really is that obviously, like with a lot of training and education, like that comes with huge benefits. And one of those benefits is the fact that your decision making can become very automatic. Um, so I think doctors have this kind of joke that they can diagnose people you know, within 30 seconds of having, of them having entered their office, because they just, they can see it, they can feel what's wrong with someone. Um, same with like a radiologist, you know, might not have to like analyze every part of the scan, they can just their eyes will immediately go to the tumor. And that is really successful most of the time, you know, 90% of the time. The problem is with those other 10%, uh, where maybe the data is a little bit more ambiguous or there's something a little bit more misleading. And the problem is that with the real expert, they're kind of thinking so automatically, they're on this autopilot, that they they don't really see those kind of the potential for their errors. Um, they're really basing their decisions just on heuristics rather than analysis. Um, and so we definitely see that in medicine, we see it in forensic science, uh, where it could lead to miscarriages of justice. You know, it's been shown in financial traders as well, that actually, the more expertise that these people on the stock market have, the uh, more susceptible they are to certain kinds of cognitive biases, because they've changed from being analytical to just being intuitive. And that comes with all of these potential errors. So it's a very serious problem. So now we know how being really good at something, being really smart, um, can make you know lead you down the wrong path in these particular situations. Um, but let's talk a little bit then about how we can overcome some of these potential traps, uh, and in fact engage in deep learning, uh, and and sort of what that means. So in in particular, I was kind of uh, struck by your kind of three principles of deep learning that came from the sort of East Asian uh, philosophy, which I hadn't really been um, so I hadn't really known about. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about um, how should we learn even if we score high on tests of analytical intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I think this um, this was another part that just really shocked me when I read it, because you kind of think, well, if IQ and if intelligence really can tell us anything important about someone, it is how quickly they learn. But the problem is that sometimes even the most intelligent people just have really bad ways of learning. Um, so I'd say um, there are a number of kind of parts to this, um, many reasons why someone who's intelligent won't learn so well. I think one could just be a lack of curiosity which doesn't correlate very strongly with intelligence. And curiosity is such an important driver of learning. It's not just the motivation, it actually cements the memories in your mind. So there's um, lots of research showing that the more curious you are about something, the more kind of dopamine your brain uh, produces as you're kind of processing that information. And that dopamine really helps you to form the memory um, and a long-term memory that's a lot stronger, more concrete in your brain. Um, so a lack of curiosity is definitely a problem. We've also seen studies in schools that show that um, even though lots of children start out being incredibly curious, by the end of their education, they've kind of lost all of their curiosity. And that maybe tells us something about the problems of education, that we're not really sparking that kind of interest. Another reason could be that... Uh, intelligent people might lack a growth mindset. So that's just this idea that your abilities can improve and that you can build on them, as opposed to a fixed mindset where you feel that your abilities are kind of laid down at birth and that if you fail, then that's kind of a reflection of something very core to yourself and 
you know, maybe you just, there's no point in you trying anymore because you've already proven yourself to be a failure. Um, and intelligent people could have either of those mindsets. But if you have the fixed mindset, that's really going to be quite limiting. Whenever you come up against a challenge, you might just give up rather than persevering. Um, but I think the, the kind of issues that you were really getting at was this idea of uh, desirable difficulties and productive failure. Um, and again, this is something that I don't think intelligent people are especially good at appreciating. But there's been so much really important research now showing that actually um, most people assume that learning should be easy and that the easier something is to understand initially, the better you're learning it. But all of this research has really shown that's actually not true. That when you feel confused and frustrated, as unpleasant as that might feel, that's actually a sign of deep learning. So we should actually be encouraging our students to feel frustrated, to feel confusion, because that will, in the end, improve their learning. It'll lead to a deeper conceptual knowledge. It'll lead to um, longer um, kind of memory formation. It'll also mean that they can use the knowledge more flexibly, because the process of the struggle has prepared their mind for all of the challenges that might come in the years ahead. Yeah, I think I think your point is very well taken because at least in you know I'm a professor at two different institutions, um, but the University of San Francisco, where I'm going to be starting full time in a in a few weeks, is a place where the students ask for um, a lot of aids. So, for example, it's general practice to upload your slides ahead of time and to use PowerPoint. Um, so there's one I remember there was one class that I taught which was a seminar where I did not intend to make slides at all. It was going to be purely lecture because it was a sort of upper level seven. And it was, you know, going to be discussion. And it was incredibly uncomfortable for the students. They really pushed back a lot uh, um, on that because there's something about sort of seeing the slides and knowing that you have them that made them feel like secure about it. And yet it impedes their learning. Um, I'm sure that, you know, had I stuck to my guns and maybe this year having talked to you, um, I will make this case more eloquently and convince them to, you know, really come along on the ride with me. Um, because one of the things that I, I find is that sometimes um, young people, especially who have not had the opportunity to really struggle in that kind of confused way and work with material, you know, material is so ubiquitously available now in the internet, you know, you can find anything you, you want, the kind of searching and, and trying to understand something without using uh, external materials, I think becomes less and less common. Um, you know, it's so foreign to them that they don't think that they're learning, they just think they're being they're confused. Um, and yet, you know, the, the as you mentioned, the deepest form of learning is when you can see those, uh, or, you know, organize the material yourself in your head, see the connections, etc. That's when it's really lasting. Absolutely. And there have been some great studies that show like your confusion almost reaches a peak. And then after that peak, suddenly, like your understanding just has improved so much more. It's like your brain has wrestled with it, it's conquered it, and then you finally understand. I mean, I think I was quite lucky at school because so when I started at secondary school, uh, kind of middle school, uh, I was really not very good at maths, actually. So I really had to struggle during that time. Um, and then kind of once I overcame that barrier and realized I could improve, then like the subject as a whole was just so much easier for me. And, you know, whenever there was another conceptual problem, I kind of had that confidence that the confusion would actually lead to a deeper understanding. And so that really got me through my kind of high school uh, education and then my degree as well, kind of with that understanding. But I think lots of people just maybe won't have that. And especially if you've always been smart, say, at school because of your natural intelligence, and then you come to a situation where 
you know, suddenly things are a lot more difficult and you're out of your comfort zone. If you've never had that feeling of confusion and the realization that it can be useful, then it can just lead you to kind of give up rather than persevering. So there's one more thing that I want to talk about. um, And that is that, you know, even highly intelligent people who who score high on, um, you know, analytical intelligence and maybe even practical and creative intelligence can get fooled. Uh, in fact, you know, here we are in London, actually not too far from 221 Baker Street, which is, you know, the fictional home of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and you start your book out with this just fascinating story of Arthur Conan Doyle just being hoodwinked by Houdini uh, and how, in fact, the fact that he was so smart made him even easier uh, to fool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, bullshit detection. And, you know, what, what are some of the tools that, you know, even highly intelligent people can use in order to detect bullshit? Um, and, uh, you know, especially when it comes in this guise of, of, of information. Sure. I mean, I think like this is really the uh, reflection of the intelligence trap that we're seeing all around us. So for example, um, there was uh, a study looking at the kind of American uh, birther conspiracies concerning Obama's uh, birth certificate. Um, And they actually found that amongst a certain demographic, the more um, educated they were, the more likely they were to believe that, even after it had been debunked. So that's another example of motivated reasoning that can kind of push us to believe fake news. Um, But in terms of how we can protect ourselves from that, there have been a few really good studies recently that have shown that, you know, you can improve people's bullshit detection in lots of ways. And so I think the best is really this idea of giving yourself what they call a cognitive inoculation. And that is really understanding and learning about the process of spreading misinformation, maybe in a completely different context, maybe even in a historical context. Um, So, for example, uh, when the researchers taught um, some participants about how the tobacco industry had kind of created this idea of a false controversy about the effects of smoking and its links to lung cancer, that when the participants had learned about that, they then became more skeptical of misinformation about climate change because they could make that connection. And that was so much more powerful than trying to appeal directly to people's uh, kind of rationality about climate change itself because it just circumvented the whole issue of that motivated reasoning. It kind of allowed people to make those connections themselves. It's almost like they were benefiting in a way from having from going through that process of confusion and then confronting the facts and then understanding it for themselves meant that they were much more skeptical in the end. Um, so inoculation is great. And I, I do think like now some schools and universities are really trying to teach uh, critical thinking classes that incorporate this principle. So learning about things like cognitive biases and logical fallacies, but then also seeing how that applies to real world events is very powerful at improving people's bullshit detection. Okay, so I lied. One last thing that I wanted to just quickly cover, um, and and that is, you you actually spend a fair amount of your book talking about um, morality and how that relates to intelligence, which was surprising to me. So tell us a little bit about how some of these ideas dovetail with um, with morality. Right. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, when the IQ test was first kind of invented and used, um, especially when it was translated from the original French and into America by this, into um, American English by this guy, uh, Lewis Terman. He was a very strong believer in the idea that IQ would predict your kind of 
uh, morality, but the smarter you were, the better you were able to make moral decisions. So the less like you, likely you were to commit crimes, for example. Um, now, I think we really have moved away from that. I really hope we have. And I think you can see some of the worst crimes, you know, uh, committed by the most intelligent people. And also, they might be so smart, they know how to kind of avoid being discovered. So, you know, like corporate fraud, that kind of issue. So I wouldn't say that intelligence is related to morality in that way. But I do think that when um, you look at all of these elements that I'm discussing, things like the bullshit detection, the capacity to really understand the world around you and appraise evidence, I actually do think that is crucial for making moral decisions, because you really want to make sure that you're when you're making any kind of decision that has an impact on the world, that it is based on evidence rather than just your beliefs. So I, I think that really by um, by improving our wisdom rather than just our intelligence, then that's the first step to being more moral and better people. But there's a long way to go beyond that. Well, David Robson, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. And I want to remind our listeners that his book, The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this mini two-part series about how we develop expertise featuring the two Daves. That's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgul, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. See you next week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.